You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. Chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later... His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Thanks very much for the reading. And um, yeah, we're looking at that passage tonight. So have it open in front of you. And uh, I'm asking this question tonight, or speaking to this question. um, Why question the resurrection? Why question uh, the resurrection? And in part, we question the resurrection. It's a good idea to, in, to, to question the resurrection because we know, don't we, that Christianity rises or falls on the resurrection. So there's a quote up there on the screen, screen by, behind me. Um, and it's a bit hard to read down here, but I'll do my best. So it says, take away Easter... This is N.T. Wright. Take away Easter and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring the problems of the material world. Take it away and Freud was probably right to say Christianity 
is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche's probably was right to say it was for wimps. Take away the resurrection, and you've really got nothing left. If the resurrection is not true, Christianity falls apart. Paul says, we believe in vain if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. And there is a compelling historical case to be made. So here's another quote, this time out of John Dixon's, uh, one of his books. He says, historians take the resurrection story far more seriously than many of us realise. They all agree that something very strange happened that first Easter. As one scholar memorably put it, there is a resurrection-shaped dent in the historical record. And it's quite a puzzle working out how it got there. <laughs> Isn't that great? There's this appearance of a resurrection. We know that couldn't have happened, right? Because people don't come back to life from the dead. But there sure is an appearance of a resurrection concerning what happened before, what happened Afterwards, it's hard to explain. People like Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who was passionately against Christians and would even kill them. And then halfway through the game, he went from playing for Hawthorne to playing for Geelong. He just swapped teams all of a sudden. What the heck are you doing? It doesn't make any sense. And that's just one thread. There's stacks of things like that that just don't seem like the best explanation seems to be that a resurrection happened. That's the easiest, simplest way to explain it. So we know that it's important uh, to Christianity and we know that there's a compelling case to be made. So yeah, sure, Christianity, and especially the resurrection, invites questioning and inquiry. And if you're here this week, really not sure about Christianity, you are welcome. It's great to have you here and it's a great time to be weighing up what the Bible says and whether or not it's true. You can make a decision for yourself. But I want to also suggest tonight that there's a sense in which we really shouldn't question Christianity. And that's what I particularly think we see here in John chapter 20, and we're going to go through it in a minute, but what we see here is people, the disciples of Jesus, his own followers, questioning the resurrection but without really any good reason. But God gets it. Jesus gets it. And he's merciful and compassionate. And that's just what I want to keep on saying and dwelling on tonight. There's a sense in which, really, we shouldn't question the resurrection. We have no right to question the resurrection even at one level. And if we get this, if we understand why, it will help us, I think, this week as we dig deep into the resurrection to understand the way we should approach it and what God is wanting to say in the resurrection. So let's look here at the first scene here. The first scene is that we have these disciples who are distressed, the, 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 the disciples are distressed, the distressed disciples. You see this here in verse 19, don't you, chapter 20. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, 
with the door locked for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leaders. And I'll pause there. What a scene, right? Here they are. All the disciples gathered together, freaking out. They're terrified. They're petrified. They're cowering like Peter, you know, when he said that, I will follow you, I'll defend you to the death. And then when he gets to the trial, Peter denies him three times. And that's what they're all doing en masse together. They scattered when Jesus was smashed on the cross. And now they're kind of wondering what's going to happen to them. If they did that to our leader, what's going to happen to us? Perhaps they'll kill us. And so they've locked the doors for fear of the Jews. They don't believe that the, resur- uh, sorry, the, the, the crucifixion was part of the plan. They are not anticipating a resurrection. They think everything has gone horribly south. But I want to ask, why didn't they believe that it was all part of the plan? Why weren't they confident that it was all going to work out? I mean, they were there, weren't they? They were there when Jesus healed the paralytic, when, when the paralytic was lowered down and, and, and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And then he said to him, pick up your mat, get up and walk. And everyone was stunned, this powerful miracle. And he forgives sins, he must be God. That's blasphemy. They were there when he did that. They were there when he gave the Sermon on the Mount and preached with authority and said that he had come to fulfill the law. They were there. They were there when he fed the 5,000, when he broke the loaves and they multiplied in the fish and they multiplied. They saw the miracle with their own eyes. The disciples were sent out to, to spread the message about the kingdom and they themselves performed miracles in the name of Jesus and they came back saying, I can't believe what we can do. They were there when Jesus said to Lazarus, he'd been in there for several days, he he, he stank And, and, and Jesus says, come out. And Lazarus comes out back to life. The disciples were there. And Jesus had told the disciples, we know in the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we know that there are three accounts that all more or less match of him saying he had to die for sins and that he'd be raised again. There's a fourth one in Matthew as well. And you know what, there were probably... Many more times than that, that he taught them that he had to die and that he was going to rise again. So what's going on? Why were they doubting? Why didn't they get it? Well, surely they're afraid... Um, that's one answer. They're just completely terrified. They're not thinking straight. The other one is it doesn't fit their expectations of who the Messiah would be. Yes, correct, correct. But really what's going on, according to the Gospels, is that they are dull. They're dull. Not stupid dull. They're spiritually dull. Because of their spiritual state... Because they're born into sin, born of Adam, 
they have a spiritual blindness, and so they're just not on the same wavelength, and they just don't understand the law, for instance, particularly in the same way that Jesus understood the law. They just can't see it. They're dim. It reminds me a bit of that, um, my favourite YouTube video, and bear with me here because it's one of the most popular videos on YouTube. But you know the one? Many of you know the one? The Magic Coffee Table? Do you know the one? Uh, and so bear with me for those of you who don't, I'm just relieving the glory of this, this video. I enjoy it a lot. I keep watching it again and again. There's this couple and, uh, and, and, and the woman, the, the girlfriend comes home to her boyfriend and he's there just slumped on the couch watching TV and the house, you know, the, the flat is a, is a mess. Dinner hasn't been made. And he just sort of really casually says, uh, as she comes in from work looking pretty frazzled, what's for dinner? <laughs> and you can see the steam starting to come out of her ears and she's really angry at him and says, oh, I just wish that you would show some initiative. And she sort of goes on and, and he goes, it's going to be fine, don't worry about it. And that makes her even more angry. He goes, it's going to work out. And then she says, what are you talking about? And he says, there's something I want to show you. He says, come over here with me. And he takes his girlfriend over to a washing basket on the kitchen bench and says, this basket. It's amazing. You chuck your dirty washing in there. And the next day, it turns up on your bed, washed and folded. It's incredible. And she goes, are you kidding me? And he says, I know, I didn't believe it either at first. <laughs> he says, there's more, there's more, come over here to the coffee table. He goes, see this coffee table? He sort of bows down out of reverence to it, like down, crouching down, this, like in awe. This coffee table? You put like, like a, a, a dirty plate and cups on there? You walk away, you come back, it's gone. It's crazy, it happens all the time. And sometimes I put it to the test. I get all this junk on there, pizza boxes, and smear it onto the table, and I surely it won't work this time. I go away, come back, it's gone. It's all gone, the miss is completely gone. It's gonna be okay. And she's just going, you are unbelievable. And then it cuts to, I know the next day, Two police officers are, there, officers are there and they say, so how long has your girlfriend been missing? And uh, he says, a couple of days. And, and, and the, the policeman says, um, so any idea what happened to your girlfriend? Like why she vanished? And he says, no idea at all. And then he says, oh, unless she fell onto the coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the female police officer says, what are you talking about? That's crazy talk. And the male police officer goes, and this is sort of the, where it lands, the punchline, he goes, he's not crazy. I've got one of those coffee tables too in my house. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty bad, but it's also good. <laughs> but the, the really, really crazy thing about that story and that skit is that my wife thought it was hilarious. And she brought it to me and showed me that video 
And I said to her, I don't understand what's funny. And she explained it to me, and oh my gosh, we don't have a magic coffee table either. And I think this revelation spread around the world. And it's making a joke, right? It's making a joke of the stereotypes. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, we're on a different wavelength. And women can be, stereotypically, generally, women can be insensitive to the way that guys think. Men can be very insensitive to the way that women think and their proclivities and inclinations, right? On different wavelengths. And here what we have here is a clash of wavelengths. The disciples just aren't on the same wavelength as Jesus or God or the Holy Scriptures. And it's because they're of the flesh. They're sinful. They're born of Adam. They're spiritually blind. And Jesus is holy and righteous and light into darkness. But they don't see it for what it is. Because their eyes are covered by their own sinfulness. Why question the resurrection? Well, it, well, it, it, it invites questioning the resurrection, but at another level, we shouldn't. It should be something that everyone, everywhere, for all time, recognises straight away and bows the knee. But we don't because we're blinded by our sin. And look at how Jesus responds. He says... I'll read it again. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sides. Uh, his side. The disciples uh, were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. And uh, if you're reading along carefully with me, I think a lot of questions might be bubbling up in your head about those verses. They're really intriguing. He breathes on them and, receives the Holy, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you forgive someone's sins, their sins will be forgiven. What's he talking about? Well, there are lots of questions there, but you know what? We're not going to get into that. We're going to sort of brush over them because it's not the point I want you to see here now tonight. What I want you to see is that he is so gentle and tender and merciful, isn't he? To his disciples, they were with him all the way. See, all these incredible miracles, his power, they declared him to be the Messiah. They knew he was God. He could have rebuked them. He could have said, yet again, why are you so dull? As on numerous other occasions, he said that to them. But rather than that, he just says, peace be with you. See, why question the resurrection? Well, we really shouldn't, but God gets it. Jesus gets it. He loves us and he's merciful and he picks them up, says peace be with you and he commissions them to carry on his work, to be a part of his glorious ministry in the world. 
It's a beautiful moment. A gentle steering them back on course. I remember one, uh, one time I, at, when I was studying at Bible college, I kept on being, there's a guy called Chapo who used to, um, used to teach us preaching. And I was, I was regularly 10 minutes late, even though I lived there on campus. I don't know how this works, but I was 10 minutes late. It might explain something actually, but anyway. But I, 10 minutes late all the time to um, his, his lectures on preaching. And uh, one day he just came up to me as people were leaving, he said, yeah, can, can I have a chat? And, and he just talked to me by myself. And he said, um, you know, I noticed that you're regularly turning up late. And I know you're a poor student, and I can see you've got no watch on your wrist. Um, and so, look, I've got, a, I've got a watch in my drawer at home that's spare. Can I give it to you? And, uh, and I was embarrassed. <laughs> and maybe it was meant to be <laughs> kind of a... Uh, a bit of a chastisement, but I took it, and I think it was actually meant sincerely. He was just trying to encourage me. It was so nice and so gentle. He could have just chewed me out, couldn't he? But he was kind and merciful, and that's what we have here, a kind and merciful saviour. And then we move on to Thomas, and this passage is, is, this sort of section is famous for doubting Thomas. I'm calling him, just for the sake of alliteration, the tenacious Thomas, or Thomas is tenacious. And uh, that's probably not quite right, because if you're tenacious, or if you've got, you know, if you have tenacity, it's kind of got a positive connotation. Like you really stick at something, you persevere. But here, really what I'm trying to get at is that he sticks to his scepticism, even when he shouldn't. He is completely stubborn. And you know what? It's really remarkable on the back of that first few verses when you see how stubborn he is. Look there. Verse 24, now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Okay. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Okay. Reasonable for him to be a bit sceptical. Next verse, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And Jesus turns up, but get this right. A week later, after having hung out with the disciples, he could have quizzed them, cross-examined them. It's got way beyond them just trying to prank him. They've stuck to their story. He's been with them for a week. And they keep on saying, Thomas, he really is alive. Oh, it's ridiculous. I don't believe you. Thomas, he really is alive. We've all seen him. Ask everyone else. Ask them. He really is alive for a whole week. On top of what I've already said about the disciples, right? Feeding the 5,000, paralytic, Lazarus come out, feeding the 5,000, Sermon on the Mount. He's been there plus the extra week just for good measure. No, I'm still not going to believe until I can touch Jesus myself. And again, look at his response. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. 
Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. It shouldn't take all of this for any one of us to bow the knee and say, My Lord and my God. But we do question the resurrection and God is merciful and gracious and gentle and kind with us. It goes on, verse 29, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We do doubt. We shouldn't, but we do. But you are blessed if you believe. It's the right thing to do. It's not just the right thing to do. It's the life-giving thing to do, to trust in Jesus. It's the right response when you hear about Jesus being raised from the dead. My Lord and my God. And we, 2,000 years later, we too, we too have, have witnesses that have been given to us. So Jesus showed himself to the disciples. He showed himself to Thomas. But we too have heard testimony 2,000 years later. The New Testament, of course, wasn't written when the disciples are there with Jesus, but it has been written now, and it's their testimony. And they too went on to perform miracles and signs and wonders, and they preached the gospel, testifying to the fact, pointing to the fact that the Jesus they're talking about really did come back to life, really was raised from the dead and received a resurrection body. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God reaches out to us that we might believe and have life in his name. Not because he should, not because it's our right to have this testimony, these witnesses, but because we're dull, we're spiritually blind. And he's merciful and gracious. Uh, I would love to go to San Francisco. Um, in fact, I'd love to go pretty much anywhere. I've only ever been to Bali. So, you know, <laughs> crikey, there's a lot of places I'd like to go. But one of the places I'd love to go is San Francisco. It's just such a beautiful city. And I've seen the pictures of the Golden Gate Bridge and I've also seen, have you seen the, the pictures of this or the videos or in movies or whatever, the fog, the famous fog that rolls into the bay? 
and almost at times completely envelops the Golden Gate Bridge. You should look it up. There are amazing photos. Some where you cannot see any of the bridge, but just little bits of orange out the side of the fog. You would barely even know it was there. The fog is, the fog is so dense and thick. And the Bible says that that's how we are in relation to God. It's not that God is not there. It's that because of our spiritual blindness, we can't see what is self-evidently true. That's what it says in Romans chapter 1. Our hearts are darkened. Our thinking has become futile because of the sinful state we find ourselves in. Listen to what it says in in 2 Corinthians, it says here in 2 Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You see there? There's a spiritual battle going on. The resurrection of Jesus is not just about history. It's not just about philosophy. It's not even, the resurrection is not just about the discipline of theology. What is it? The resurrection, first and foremost, is God reaching down into our spiritual blindness and darkness. And it's like him putting this massive, high-powered light on the Golden Gate Bridge so it pierces the fog so you can see it's there. And the resurrection is saying, I am here. And you need to reckon with me. And you need to find refuge in me. That's what the resurrection's about. And that's what God wants us to get about the resurrection. That's what we need to wrestle with when we look at the resurrection. God is here. He is to be reckoned with and we can find refuge in him. That's what it says in Acts 17, right? It says that what does the resurrection prove? The resurrection does not prove that Christianity is true, that it's real from an historical point of view. That's not what it says in Acts 17. It says, what does it prove? It proves that God is going to judge every man, woman and child. And he has proven it by raising the one he appoints to judge from the dead. That's what it proves. But it also says there in Acts 17, therefore repent that you might be saved. Because that is primarily why Jesus came. That's why he died on the cross. That's what he, why he defeated sin and death in the resurrection, that he might defeat sin and death for us. If it was all about judgment, God could just turn up and judge in a flash. But he didn't do that. He sent his son, who, yes, is judge, but he is judge after he's gone through this saving work that instead, first and foremost, we might find refuge in him. 
That's what we need to wrestle with in relation to the resurrection this week. Now, please don't feel bad. If you're someone who's a skeptic and you're wondering, and you know, I'm not suggesting that it's wrong of you to sort of try and weigh it from a historical point of view. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's all about believing in belief. I'm not saying that. No, no. It is true. It did happen in history. You can weigh it up. You can look at it. But there's something more going on, something deeper. There's a spiritual warfare going on. There's a spiritual battle going on. And it's just not what God says is the main thing about the resurrection. The history is just not the main thing according to God. What he wants you to get is this. The resurrection is how truly you know me. The God you ought to know is there without a shadow of a doubt. In my mercy, through the power of the resurrection, I'm screaming at you. This is who I am. Wake up. This is how you know me and this is how you know who you are. It's how you know God. And it's how you know who you are. That's why we should wrestle with the resurrection. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that even though we are feeble in our sinfulness, and we are dull, just like the disciples, we cannot see the glory revealed in Christ God, we thank you that even though we are like that, you have sent your son to die on the cross, to be raised again, to call us into a relationship with you. And I pray, God, that you would help me to get that. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help every one of us in this room to get that and the depth of its glory and how much you love us in Christ this week. In your son's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.